I'm not lying when I say those letters are so touching because it, you know, it, I live such an inner life and it's so nice to just hear, you know, really pure, pure words like that from people that I may never meet. It's very, very cool. Welcome to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez on The Original Doll. I unpackage music with the people who create it, and at the same time, we give back to charity. So for every question or guest answers, we get items donated to those in need. For more information, visit theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Truly, it means a lot. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. Don't forget to follow me on your preferred streaming platform. Now, on with the show. All right, everyone, I would like to welcome you back to The Original Doll. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it, and at the same time, we give back to charity. So for every question or guest answers, we get items donated to those in need, including homeless LGBT plus teens and so many others. For more information, visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. Now, today, many of you know this is happening, so you're super excited because this is somebody that you all love globally, and I'm talking globally. We have singer, songwriter, musician, amazing, fantastic person with a diverse discography, charting, written songs that have done well in pop, alternative rock, holiday, holiday, we're going to get into that, by the way, (laughs) dance, electronic, adult, contemporary. Today, we are joined by none other than Tyler Glenn. Tyler, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. This is going to be a lot of fun because... The amount of love that you've received from listeners of the show is just, it's unbelievable. And I think the common thing amongst all of these is so many people have connected to your music over the years and connected to you. Mm -hmm. And something that you'll see in all these letters of love is people say you created music that it felt like it was written specifically for them. Oh, cool. Interesting. So they love you. Here we go. Our first letter of love, we have Frankie from Poland. James Rodriguez, I would like to request you do an interview with Tyler from Neon Trees and let him know my story. I was young when Neon Trees came out, and I always felt like I was a part of their community. I was bullied and an outcast for being different, and it wasn't until I listened to Neon Trees that I felt I wasn't alone. I found my best friends for life online when I talked about Neon Trees. I lost some friends during the pandemic who loved Neon Trees with me. Now I play the music, and I know their spirits are dancing and singing around with me. So can you please Mm. send this to Tyler and everyone, letting him know that he made me feel seen and giving me friends for life. I know that you can do this, James. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone from Poland. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. That's so um, that feels so far away. <laughs> That's so brilliant that um, that we've reached in like that. That's great. That's very cool. So what I kind of want to do is talk about music. How did music come to you? Because right there on the first letter of love, you've been able to connect with people. And I will say this in talking with songwriters, producers, and so many others, it is not an easy task to create something 
that people consume, but also feel connected to. So let's go way back to the beginning. How did music come into your life? I think, I mean, as a kid, it was always on in the house, whether it was, um, I mean, growing up in the, the 80s and 90s, it was a lot of Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson. Um, I, so I always loved pop music and kind of what was told to me was good f- through my parents. But I think when I was able to develop my own palette, um, it was a lot of rock and roll and a lot of uh, alternative music and pop punk and music that felt like it was kind of catered to the underdog or the other. Um, and I think also knowing that I was gay inside, but growing up in a kind of, you know, pretty religious Mormon home, I, I used music primarily for escape and for connection and identity, um, like, like so many do. Um, but it just became my whole world and it became my outlet for fashion. It became my outlet for my friends and connection in that way. Um, and then when I discovered that I could actually do it and, and sing, I, a lot of that came through church because that was, there was an opportunity to sing. But I think in middle school, when I started to realize, oh, maybe I could actually be an artist, which I, I had no concept of how that was going to happen. It was, you know, not to date myself, but you, you'll get it. It's, it was way pre-internet. So there weren't these tangible uh, or like really like identifiable ways to like get heard. Um, and there weren't like identifiable tools. So I just started a band with my friends, you know, and that was the kind of the age old thing um, to get in a room and just start playing music and be terrible for a really long time. <laughs> and then develop that and and develop that skill. And it is the absolute pleasure of my life to make music my career, even though the industry, you know, can eat um, empathic softies like us alive. Uh, mm-hmm. You definitely have to wade through those waters, but it's still something I wake up and like very, very grateful for, you know, so. Well, and I think one of the the best things about knowing your, because I'm an 80s baby. I'm a couple yeah. of years older than you, but I'm an 80s baby. And I just remember... I grew up in Chicago and I live in Chicago. I remember those 90 songs. And I always talk about how those teen albums really impact you. You know, Alanis Morissette, Jewel, Smashing Pumpkins, Janet, all of these have such a huge impact. And I think what I've noticed in your music and even with the, the Letters of Love is yours isn't as straightforward as this is rock or this is alternative. There's always something with a twist on it, which to me leads me to believe there you go you grew up with a diverse group of music around you you know what i mean yeah and i had so many people that basically were like we want a pink collaboration like he is the male version of pink like the oh. underdog <laughs> and I, I was like i'm here for i just saw her in london a couple of weeks ago i'm like oh I am she's here incredible for that. yeah oh that's very cool that's very cool i need to uh get a little bit more athletic in the <laughs> Cirque du Soleil of it all. But <laughs> but no, she's such a powerhouse. That's very sweet. And the thing is, I think with her and you, along with all these, these letters, is so many people said everything you were doing seemed genuine, that there was mm. no point in which it was chasing this, this style. And as a matter of fact, many people were like, we didn't know what was going to happen with the next single or the next album that they were like, we were confused and worried because <laughs> what you would think they would go this way. You know what I mean? There wasn't <laughs> S- Swedish producer a that came in and was like, let me make this or add a, you know, a, a, a rapper or a featured artist. Sure. You all were able to maintain something that was so genuine. And I think that's why 
so many of these people connected you. Several of them were like, do you know this EP that was before Habits? I have this. And I went to this concert and I'm like, calm down, everyone. I'm not the enemy. They're like, do you have this one? I have three of them. I'm like, no, I do not. I'm sorry for that. So then let me ask you, at what point then, trying out and just making music, at what point did you truly realize that it could go from a quote unquote hobby to this can be a career that can pay the bills. What was that turning point for you where it became the business too? I, I can think immediately of two things. It, I remember, you know, being in high school, it was, I was, uh, I graduated in 2002. So it was 98 to 2002, those years, really great years for what you just said, diverse music with the TRL of it all. I mean, and, and just radio was so diverse. So, you know, as much as I'd like to say that I was into sort of, um, I mean, I got really into heavy and very scene music as well. And I, I could, that was when I realized like I saw people my age or a little bit older, a little bit younger actually making bands and then getting deals. I remember this kind of niche indie pop punk record label called drive through records came to our school to, to like sort of scout people and, um, I grew up in Southern California. So it was like LA was the backyard and, and San Diego as well. And, and so there, I was very close to like tangible um, scenes where I saw people starting things and then seeing success. And so for me, it shaped my worldview of, of wanting to just get in a band and then go tour and develop a live act. Um, and that I think, I, and I'm not, I don't like to, um, you know, I, I propose that I know what it's like to be a young artist now because I, I truly don't. But I I see a lot of wonderful, beautiful artists stay on a screen and not get out and actually go do the thing in front of a crowd. And I think that was something really pure that I got to, to feel and, and touch and digest way early on. And that shaped the kind of performer I wanted to be. And And going back to that honesty thing too, I think those were the artists that I gravitated towards. And, and even if you had like a pop production or a full scale show, there was still this thing you had to cut through to the live audience to make sure that they believed you. And that was, that was a huge moment for me that I was like, Oh, maybe I could actually do this. And I'd say the other thing was honestly, randomly enough falling in love with um, Bruce Springsteen and mm -hmm. reading Every, everything I could about him, collecting all his records and falling in love with this artist that I thought were for my parents, kind of like I didn't really mm -hmm. grow up liking him. But then kind of senior year of high school, um, it was kind of coinciding with 9-11. He had released this uh, record called The Rising and it just made me, it touched me so deeply um, the way he was able to take this, this immense tragedy that affected a nation and turn it into this amazingly pure music um and then it made me just pay attention to him as a younger guy and it it shaped it also gave me a tangibility like I, I oh i could see his struggles and see that he just wasn't this arena act overnight that like our age got introduced to um mm -hmm. so it just painted this picture of like there is a way and i don't know how to explain it to my parents but i need your support parents because i think i could make this happen Give me a couple of years to figure it out. And mm -hmm. and and then we were when then we struggled for a very long time. But it those were those original excuse me moments that made me, okay, this could be possible. But there was no rule book. I mean, 
I don't think there is even today, but there are clear paths, I think, or sort of at least tools where you could go, if I do X, Y, and Z, perhaps I can go viral or cut through Mm -hmm. here. I am grateful, but I think we're all grateful for the time we grew up in because it did, it's our worldview, right? So I don't want to act like that was better than today, you know, Mm because I just don't know. I don't know how it works, you know? Well, and it's such a different time because we grew up yeah. at a point where you would buy a CD and play it all the way through. You know what I mean? Totally, that, like, totally. If you you made the effort of spending your hard-earned money going to the store, there's no guarantee that that store had it. The amount of places that it was going for the, you know, the Janet <laughs> as like a 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid going for the Janet album. And little did I know what I was going to be listening to. I was like, <laughs> why doesn't anyone have this? But it's because... I could put on that that CD and now we're celebrating that anniversary. Like I could put on an album and there was something about the storytelling from beginning to end. And I think that the cohesiveness in all of your work really shows mm. because it isn't this hodgepodge of all sorts of things that I feel like the music I've listened to lately for me has become because now it's not what's the opening track. It's it's just going to be thrown on there. It's going to be mixed up on streaming. And I fell in love with Springsteen late too. I mean, my, a couple of years before you, but mine was like Secret Garden, the Jerry Maguire yeah. song, where I was like, what is this? Gorgeous song. Oh my God, yeah. She'll let you into the parts of herself That'll bring you it's amazing and the storytelling is so simple but so complex and mm-hmm. It's that storytelling and the amount of things that I have from from fans of yours. It's always been cohesive and there's always a story and there's always a point. There's this word chosen instead of that word. And I think that that's an education that maybe some people aren't getting today because it's just, here's a song, throw it on this playlist. And that's just the, the music industry now. But we actually had somebody who said, Scout from Singapore. He said, James, please interview alternative rock king Tyler from Neon Trees. Their music is amazing. I would like to thank him for making so many good albums. I felt like the songs were made for me. I never connected to music until I heard him sing. His voice is unbelievable. Please thank him for giving all this music to all of us. If you could ask him, going back to Neantry's debut album, can you ask what song from the album was made first and last? And how was that whole production? Thank you so much. That's Scout in Singapore. That letter, that's a letter that makes you want to keep keep doing the damn thing you know that's really really cool the question was going back to the first record like how did i sort of sequence it okay Mm -hmm. i mean i grew up like you like you said referencing just full albums right and i think it was that the sequencing was so important the energy of it it felt like a set list or it felt like uh, a soundtrack in a way you wanted there to be um a story told even though maybe it wasn't like a concept record or or a full narrative you you wanted that feeling um so i just i just i love i i mean i still do that and i still love doing that we're doing that on our new album now and um i i kind of just tune out the noise of whatever's working at the time because i've seen being in doing this enough making enough albums to to really flex that muscle i I don't think people are right um, all the time, other than yourself and the creator and, and 
and maybe who you're creating it for. But um, I think albums are still important. I still think people listen to albums. Um, I mean, people are building playlists now that feel like an album, maybe, you know, like I think we're all used to now building a sequence and wanting a flow. You know, I think Sins of My Youth was a perfect starter for that record because it was an introduction to the energy of the band. I wanted to have some sort of mission statement, start that record. And the opening, you know, lyric is, I've got these habits that I cannot break. And like, to me, that's so evocative, not only of what I was going through at the time, you know, now people know, but like at the time I was deeply in the closet, had no plans of coming out. My outlet was music. My outlet was fashion. So I, maybe people weren't shocked when I did finally come out because I was pretty flamboyant, but I just, it was so important for me to hide that messaging in, in the songs because it was truly my only outlet at the time. I didn't, I wasn't out to pretty much anyone except maybe people I'd met online, things like that. But I just felt like I was telling my story and the story of the band in the sequence. I also, you know, I've paid attention now to little Easter eggs, like every one of our singles that end up working from each record are track three. So that's interesting. Hopping out for a quick second, because I wanted to talk to you about what Tyler just said. So we're going to go with Neon Tree's first three albums, Habits, the lead single, Animal, peaked at number two in the U.S. rock charts and is two times platinum in the U.S. Neon Tree's second album, Picture Show, their lead single, Everybody Talks, peaked at number 11 on the U.S. rock charts and is five times platinum in the United States. Then Pop Psychology, lead single, Sleeping with a Friend, peaked at number nine on the U.S. rock charts and is certified gold. And this just shows you how well these singles did and the lead singles right off the bat. Now we're going to get right to this. If you're a fan of statistics and everything, join my community on Patreon, theoriginaldoll.com. Now back to the show. I don't know. I think there was a nice flow. I think it, it's uh, capped really well with Our War, a song that's sort of this like hopeful uh, breakup song, which is an interesting juxtaposition because where's the hope in breakup? But I, I think that was purposeful. And it's a really nice short record, which is interesting for your first album, um, because I think we intended to make, you know, the record of our lives. Um, it kind of feels really brisk, but maybe that's a testament to why it's still people get back to it because it's digestible. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm th- trying to think back to being 25 and <laughs> understanding <laughs> the whole thing of it. But that sort of was my mindset of just like wanting to make a really bold mission statement right off the gate with that sequence. Well, and I think what was amazing is so many people talked about, like I was getting all these great letters about all these other songs. And that's what I've loved being able to do is so many people, they want to know, like, here's that number one song. But then they're also like, wait, can you talk about like Skeleton Boy? Can you talk about these? We're Mm. going through all of these. And I think that's a testament of the discography that you have, because 
it's not just laid in that one song for that one album, the one song. And of course, people love those songs. That's what they were exposed to. I also love when people are like, I came for this song, but I stayed for that. You know, there's there's so uh-huh. many people that are like, I I Animal was there, but 1983, that's what got me like hooked oh, up cool. to that. And I was just like, it's it's kind of fun that way. But also there was somebody who in one of the notes, they said, you know, they haven't felt that way. I think it was about track three. They said since realizing it after Taylor Swift always did a big number five on all of her albums, that yours were like number three, number three, number three. And then they're like, what's number three going to be? So it became this whole like, yeah. what, what are we getting into? Here's the ease. Here's the entree. You know what I mean? And when does the main course come in? What I've loved too is... And this is the other thing. So many people ask me, James, can you find out more information about like how this is doing globally? Because there are people from Russia that have sent these letters and everything going, am I the only one who listens to this? This is amazing for, for Neon Trees itself, that since 2019 on iTunes, song-wise, album-wise, you all have charted in over 67 different countries worldwide. That's just in the Whoa. past four years. Yep. Oh, wow. And Amazing. And it's great because a song like you know, we go through everybody talks and and here's an, here's an example of one. We'll hop back from that in a second. But just in the past two and a half years, everybody talks went number one in Saudi Arabia, the Philippines, El Salvador, Argentina, and the Ukraine. <laughs> Alternative all songs and pop. Very cool. I bring those things up because this is music that it was not disposable. This is, not, and when I mention those countries, it's not English is the first language, these countries. Mm. And so you've been able to create music sonically that connects with people and that lets them feel a part of that. And I think that that's something that we shouldn't overlook with with all your music. Now, here's what's great. We're going to go to Russia. Dennis, we're not actually going to Russia. No offense to Russia. (laughs) But for Dennis from Russia. The original Doll James, if you talk to Neon Tree's rock daddy, Tyler, please ask (laughs) how he came up with the idea for making Animal the first single. Were there other songs they were considering? And was the label ever telling them to go this way instead of that? It's the best song ever made, and I play it all the time. Thank you. Oh, I love that. Um, We we had written a a whole different record. You know, I going back to being in a band and touring and kind of um, our salad days, quote unquote, like we were just writing all kinds of music. And I think in a naive naive way as an artist and a pure way as an artist, I was always shaping, Oh, this, this could be a nice sequence or this could be the first song. And then obviously getting involved in a major label system where there is a team in place and a collaboration is, you know, kind of set forth, which I will say our, our early records, um, at least the first few years, it felt very collaborative. There wasn't, there wasn't those horror stories at first. Um, and I really have a lot of gratitude for my A&R at the time, Evan Lipschitz and for the radio team at Island Records. And we, I, it was so important to us to sort of have friendship and relationship with these people. Um, and so I had a belief with the team there. And I think when it came to animal, I think the fights that we had were more about um, who was going to produce the record and, and then uh, what it was going to be called. Cause a lot of people wanted us to just call it, here we go again, or, um, you know, take, take the line <laughs> that I repeat in the chorus or something. And to me, it like, it wasn't about, you know, it, the song is about that animalistic nature to like, want to, you know, devour your, <laughs> devour the one you're in love with, not physically, but it was very much like, I think 
we knew we had something special. And funny enough, we went to go record the album in Brooklyn. Cause I think also being artists, you like at that time going to New York and making a record was a very like uh, sort of fantasy mm-hmm. and felt very bandy at the time. So we did, we went and, and I won't name the producer cause he's, uh, he's a lovely man and, and produced amazing things, but it just didn't work for us. So there were a first half of that album habits that, sounded almost completely different um, that we recorded in New York for three weeks and we just sat there like everything sounded good and, and sonically there were things that were amazing, but we just kept going back to the demo of, um, of those songs and especially animal. There was just sort of this crispness in the production and my heart just knew I had to produce that album and that record with Tim Pagnata, who we, I had written um, a, a big chunk of those songs with. And it was a real testament to listening to your gut because we had spent so much money at that point with the label and we're new and you, you want to stick to your guns, but you at, the, at that time, you're just so hungry for success and, and being uh, workable, which is not always a great thing to be as an artist. I think it was a good lesson to stick to, to my intuition. I remember our bass player, like we were listening to the demos that we had or the records that we had made in Brooklyn back in the hotel room and just felt so defeated when you should feel like so excited. Look at all this mm-hmm. work we just made. We're so excited. Um, and it, it just felt like it was not going to be it. And I'm glad I did that because it goes back to um, that letter that you've read and things you've been saying. These, these songs have are still played um, as currently in some radio markets as as mm-hmm. uh, anything new, which is, uh, I mean, shocking for me as a kid that is so self-deprecating and has overcome so much insecurity to look at that. That's, you know, bonkers because that's like pretty much the teenage dream to, to just have a song that connects like that. And I think it's, again, just a testament to to knowing it needed to sonically sound that way. And there was just a special quality, you know, that that vocal that you, you hear on the song that everyone um, that knows the song knows is my demo vocal. It's my first, you know. Amazing. That's yeah, so it was like, amazing. Why, re- why recreate <laughs> any of that? There was just an urgency there. Here we go again. I kind of want to be more than friends. So take it easy on me. I'm afraid you're never satisfied. Yeah, I think if anything, I just learned to be honest and true, first and foremost, to myself as the creator. And and I just sounded like I called myself a religious thing as the creator of the song and as we the band. We have now joined our own cult. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. <laughs> the Here We Go Again cult. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank God we didn't call it Here We Go Again, right? I when you you saw the look on my face, I was like, oh. Yeah, I know. Pat, well, funny enough, Demi Lovato... I know. Demi Lovato was in um, the studio that we tracked Animal and wrote Animal in at the same time. And she was young. Her record, her that, that first record came out of hers and it was called Here We Go Again. So part of me wonders, was there just something mm-hmm. in the air? And she didn't copy anything because it doesn't sound like the record, but it, there was just an interesting, oh, that phrase, I knew you were there. I saw you in the, the green room of the studio. Like, anyway, so it was interesting. Well, and, and that's one of those things. It's so crazy to think, even putting in that time, how 
the title of a song can really help and hurt because if you're like yeah. my dad's favorite song or something like that, they're like, what is that? Like a lot of radio programs be like, pass, you know, here we go again. Uh -huh. I'm like, okay, it, it feels like I'm on a roller coaster. Yay. This is great. When I first heard your voice, I was like, who the f is this? Because uh -huh. the, the, the vocals were so like raw and they weren't what I thought they would be. They weren't like, I'm going to hit this note and here it, it, because mm. so it blew me away and it attacked the songs like an animal. So that's what I always thought. Like, here's this animal coming at you. It's like drawing you in, you know, and then just kind of attack. And I think that part to me is, is, has been great listening to your voice. And we had people that were like, what does he do to keep his voice going? How does he have that? Like, because it's not that you're relying on production to handle it because you all toured you all sang these songs live the amount of radio st stations that you had to sing these songs at like i i crack up when uh, so many people are like oh can you ask about this radio interview or this or they'll send me like a youtube link or whatever and it's just like you're like this is you know the 16th radio station of the <laughs> day and they're asking me what is your name? Oh, Taylor. Are you Taylor? Is that you? Tyler? Taylor. Nice to be Tyler. Ty you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. It's all those things. But I think to your point early on, you're eager to just make that album to just get it out there. I One of uh, the guests that have been on the show a lot is Steve Lunt, who is Britney Spears' A&R guy, developer and everything. Uh -huh. And he's now become a friend of mine. And he's in so many of these episodes. And he really explained to the listeners what an A&R person does. Mm. And he's like, but you can't make a star out of somebody who doesn't want to be a star. You can't create this Svengooli unless there's some talent there. It's whatever's there, but also you have to go, what can we do to break the market that is going to be consumed by many? Because if you just wanted to, you know, make your own album, you're like, here, keep it on MySpace. You know what I mean? Let's go old sure. school. Keep it on MySpace. No, totally. <laughs> um, and no shade to the MySpace people out there. But uh, thank God you never made a song called MySpace, as far as I know. Please no, no, no. Never. Oh, my God. No. I mean, we were proudly on MySpace at the time, but we, were, yes, we but weren't referencing MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine? I broke up with MySpace to go to Facebook, and they're like, oh, here we yeah. go, Friendster. All right. <laughs> so, so when you're deciding, because this was still at the time, you all came in still at the time where CDs were selling. You were right yeah. at that. The last bastion of, of that point. Yeah, but... Yeah, I mean, that was the thrill. I, I'll let, sorry, I, I'll let you um, finish your question, but that was just the thrill of having a physical, I mean, I get sad still that like most bands, even the biggest bands in the world aren't really caring that much about the physical thing anymore. I mean, maybe vinyl has made totally made a comeback, but that just feeling, that essence of going into like an end cap of a record store, or even like a Target or a Best Buy at that time was like, gold and it was such a trip and kind of that moment go in with your friends and physically buy it or be on tour and check is the cd housed here oh, i'm gonna buy a copy even though i own 17 of them or whatever it just was that that thrill of that physical thing that was wonderful to be a part of that's why i created this to really go this is about the liner notes the creatives because people might think well wait he's the good looking singer he he's probably just up there propped He's not the one writing this. He's not the one behind this. And so many people did not realize that there's a whole village that it takes to get these because you weren't just like, here, everyone, I just made this. I'm putting it out there. You have to get it right. through the label. Your A&R person it has to get mixed all these different parts. And 
so many of the listeners were like, I guess I didn't realize songs go through evolutions. To your point, if you went with producer A, it would have been a completely different, it would have been a completely different outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about this. And you, to me, are one of those, you know, and just Neon Trees in general, one of those last groups that I've seen that still are consistent with it's not separate producer songwriter in every every album which i feel like it's become lately um and that's why i always loved jimmy jam and terry lewis with the janet albums it's a cohesive album and they kind of know what they're working with so i wanted to go through that but here's what's great is we actually have another question about picture show now this is what's amazing the and well, going back for a second, the Animal 10th Anniversary Edition Acoustic charted in seven different countries on iTunes, including going number two in Colombia and number six in Singapore. We had oh, amazing. And this is the part that's so cool is that you've created not only the original song, and we're not talking about when this came out. These are the revisited versions. These are songs charting years later. You're charting along with other alternative artists that are releasing songs now. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So for me, it's great. So we have Tommy from Ireland. James, I would love it if you could ask anyone from the Neon Trees about the production of Picture Show. Were they scared making the album because Habits did so well and was loved by fans right away? What was the first song they made for the album? And was there any concern after pressing Let's Go going, is this going to be well received? How was this different than making Habits? Thank you. And tell Tyler and everyone else they rock so much. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that was a, we were in full bliss mode making picture show because we were coming off of this. I mean, I got, I got to remind people like we were the kind of very much get in a van and hustle and open for bands and get in a room and write songs. Um, and so when animal effectively changed our lives and put us on the map, it, I mean, we had toured habits for, practically two and a half years straight. And so I was doing that thing where I was writing and learning, you know, garage band at the time on my MacBook and just <laughs> writing songs and, and making sure that it, it didn't feel like a rushed thing that we were doing or a thing that, that didn't ha- still have that humanity in it. Cause as you've mentioned, I've always um, said that I ri- I write what I know. Right. Um, and I, it's about the human experience. I mean, down to like our logo was in on every record was the heart with wings. It was sort of this a human heart with wings. It was sort of this just idea that I was making commentary, not only on, on love or breakup songs, but that inner life that people don't know. And like a lot of those records, especially as I got more comfortable as a songwriter, like picture shows a very vast body of work. And it was our opportunity because we're coming off such great success with animal the the label really wanted another song and, and and another record and they gave us a budget to play with which was so fun you know because things got a little bit bigger i was the imagination was really able to be in full flux it was really exciting and i i think we had written i had probably written i think there was a song called still young that i wrote on that album first and it was j- j- while we were touring i think in australasia for habits
there was another song called Mad Love that I had written, and it was a little faster, the original version. And then Everybody Talks and Moving in the Dark were both written in the same session. And Everybody Talks just kind of jumped out as like, this sounds like a song that's perfect to bridge the sound and vibe of Habits into Picture Show. And then once that maybe bridges everything, then we can get to some of the artier tracks or some of the expansive productions and things like that. And so Everybody Talks came out in just, I think, December of 2011. And I, in my mind, I literally just thought of it as like a bridge song or a nice, a nice first little taste track. And it just, it showed its legs pretty right out of the gate. It got synced on a, on a commercial that we were in for a car commercial that we were also in, which was trippy. And it just popped off and the song truly exploded in. All of a sudden, here we are. This is our next big song. And I love that people have really gotten into the record since that period of time where we were promoting Everybody Talks So Heavily because there are, to me, obviously songs that have a little bit more meaning or a little bit more depth. But at the same time, I look back at Everybody Talks and that was truly me talking about an ex-girlfriend that was spreading a rumor that I was gay, which happened to me. And... So it was, a, it was a song about gossip and it still was a, an honest song about what I felt like having this secret and then someone that I loved um, started spreading it because she was, you know, mad that I didn't want to be with her. And so as much as that song sounds like happy and boppy and, and sort of evokes that summery spirit, there is that sort of darkness within the mm -hmm. song that I, I'm proud of. Like, but, and, and I love playing it now. I, I don't, I mean, I guess I understand if artists get tired of songs, but for me, that song, Animal, the song, Sleeping With A Friend, Lessons In Love, there's certain songs that just, we start, we play and people just, those, those songs that aren't, aren't ours anymore, right? That, that cliche thing of just saying like, We've now given that to someone else and they have made entire memories and nights with their friends and family that I will never know about to that song. And so it's theirs now. And so I'm so proud of it and proud of that record. It's stream the picture show still streams really well, which it's a weird thing to say because I'm not a big numbers guy, but it is that data right in front of you that, I mean, you're explaining to me like yep. songs I didn't even know were charting. So it is, it's a pinch me moment. Mad Love Still Young have also charted. Every single one of your songs from every album has charted on iTunes in some country, some somewhere in the past. And this is just four years worth of data that I was able to get. And well, this is good data to have because as we plan our international touring next year and the year after, like, uh, I'm going to show my manager and agent this podcast. And <laughs> Hopping out for a quick second. Many people have messaged me saying, James, how do you get all this great information? All of these international charts, all of this music radio database and everything. Well, I subscribe to so many different radio magazines, subscriptions, so many things. And so that's why joining me on Patreon, your support 
allows me to continue to do that and continue to research and honor the greats. So if you want to join my Patreon community, just join it. It's as little as a dollar a month. You're able to support this show, the original Dow James Rodriguez, iconography, and more. Don't forget you can go to it, theoriginaldoll.com, and follow me on Instagram. If you have a favorite artist, if you have a letter of love you'd like to send an artist, a songwriter, a producer, send it to me there, or go to theoriginaldoll.com, scroll down to the bottom, and leave it in the comments section. Now back to the show. So everybody talks, Johnny from Canada. James Rodriguez, I would like to send love to Tyler from Neon Trees. I remember he wrote about the song, and the story behind Everybody Talks and My Heart Hurt for Him. As a queer person, I didn't find anyone in the alternative rock music arena who I connected with. Tyler was the first person who I connected with when he talked openly about his struggles. I connected with him. I was going through my own issues and Neon Trees really brought me out of my funk. They helped me. I was depressed and felt alone. Whenever I play Neon Trees, music, I feel like someone sees me. Send my love to Tyler. He is an angel brought to earth to help others. And I love and I'm in awe of his bravery. Thank you. Oh, geez. That's so nice. That is so kind. <laughs> You're like, what is happening out here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a really good day today, James. That's all. <laughs> well, After hearing all this nice stuff. <laughs> but the thing is, it's, I think what I've appreciated about you and your career is, and just even the persona outside of like the, the albums, is that you've been open about just struggling mental health. you know we didn't talk about mental health that terminology mm-hmm. when you were talking about you know anxiety and things like that we didn't do that but you were able to talk about it and it wasn't like i have anxiety here's the new pill that you can take called anxiety uh, yeah by the way since 2019 everybody talks has charted in over 44 different itunes countries worldwide including going number one on the alternative charts in saudi arabia the philippines Argentina, Ukraine, number one on all songs in El Salvador. That's just a handful of those. So this song, I mean, how many years ago did you actually write Everybody Talks? I mean, yeah, like 14 years ago. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it still has, still found the way. So let me ask you this then. When you're creating Everybody Talks, how much did you let the rest of the band, how much did you let every other person that was before the music was released, how many people knew about the story the the dark side of it to to your point this song is like it sounds like this happy retro funk yeah but when you listen to it which is what you do well it's there's this juxtaposition between the sonics and the lyrics and it's this fine line of going i feel am i sad am i when you it's deeper than what it seems so how much did you open up to the people around before the the song came out nobody 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 at the time i mean i my biggest influence as a songwriter at that time in that tone like finding that juxtaposition between dark and light was was morrissey and the smiths uh specifically um you know the smiths albums where it has some of the like most fun new wave pop songs that are so unique and singular but they're so dour at the same time time and so half glass empty and i you know for better for worse i think i am that type that really has to remind myself what's positive about life because i can be so naturally cynical and so naturally sort of observant of everything and that's where i hid everything in, in was the music i think it's only been in the last six seven years where i've merged a lot of the inner life and my my public life and my my life with my friends and i mean it's it's saved my life in so many ways because it's just not sustainable to 
live in secret. It just isn't. Um, even if you do have outlets, it just catches up with you at some point. The first person I ever told truly about what any of the songs were about was Tim uh, Pagnata, who I was pretty much my musical partner for for many years. And I, I think that was really healing because he knew me in, in a way that no one else did as well because we were so collaborative and so just in the weeds together when we were creating um, music and creating these records. But it was, it was years later. So, I mean, I didn't really even... I, don't, I think I may have tweeted what Everybody Talks was about in like 2019. So it wasn't even that long ago. I was going to say, I felt like it was around, I felt like it was around the pandemic time. Yeah, maybe like 2020. Like, yeah. And I remember seeing that and just thinking like, as, as a gay man with the last name of Rodriguez that grew up in mm. Chicago, it's a vastly different thing. But still, there's also that part of no matter what you do, how does being your true self impact not just work, but those people around you? Because and and so many times people have talked to me and they go, I don't understand. Like, why why is there this guilt? I go, well, some people might feel like, well, were you being your genuine self around these people? Like, was this all this facade? And I go, and people just have to. Everyone's journey is so different, and I think when I go back through, it's like I feel some pain and shame and guilt, but there's always hope in there, mm-hmm. and. Because I always say I would rather live in like a Tim Burton world than anywhere else. I I, I love the great. Do you know what I mean? I love that. Like, yeah. <laughs> so kind of got the goth nature of it all. One hundred percent. And I think when I look at that, when I listen to these, it's like wow. And then when you opened yourself up to everyone else, then all of these loves of your, you know, these love letters, these people who love your music and love you, then go. Let me go back through this this journey. Let me see those things. And to me, that was so many people I know were revisiting songs that they're like, oh, you know how like Carly Simon or somebody, Joni Mitchell, you hear it's like this and you're like, yeah, wait, they were and you go back through and then it hits you differently. And that's the brilliance of of your music that it isn't just this is face value. You know what I mean? There's always something more. So what do you think looking at where you were at when you first started. Do you think there was anything, was there a point before that, that you were like, I just need to like throw this all out there? It, yeah. Be I as mean, open like, as, as you want. So, I mean, as early as I, 2009, I have a friend in Corey that reminds me of, we were playing, we were opening up for, funny enough, we were opening up for Nico Vega, who was, and, and Imagine Dragons was opening for us. It, it was Imagine Dragons, us and Nico Vega. Dan ended up meeting his now um, ex-wife, but his the mother of his children through Nico Vegas, Nico Vegas singer. And it, uh, I remember it. We were at this little show, and I, I said something on the mic of because I could tell there were kind of like bro guys, you know, sort of mocking what I was wearing. And we were nothing at the time. We we're just this opening band that no one knew and had no business knowing, and uh, mocking me. And I, I just felt very defensive. And I said something on the mic about being, maybe I'm bisexual or maybe I'm something and it didn't matter. There would be moments like that. I, there's even a song on, on Picture Show called Teenage Sounds. There's a lyric in there that was so bold at the time. I'm sick of being called a fag because I'm queer. I'm sick of being called a fag because I'm queer. And that's in the song that came out in 2012, two years before I even uttered it. Yeah, two years before I even uttered that I was... Gay, but I was just, I was saying these things. And I, 
and in, in interviews or when people would ask what that line meant. And I didn't get asked a lot because it wasn't a very like uh, popular song. It was an album track. But I think amongst the fans and certain people, they did wonder. And I would, I just used it at the time, like queer, like I'm weird, like I'm, you know. And at the time I was tired of being called that slur because that I had been used. I mean, a lot of, I think, gay men or um, flamboyant mm -hmm. uh, dressers are used to being called that since the day where they, they were born. So I was very used to that. And that, that was that energy I was trying to put in the song. But in, in many ways I was, you know, coming out but uh it was little jokes or little things i would say on stage or certain certain ways i would act a bravado i think a lot of people just loved that i was kind of this flamboyant character that was also ambiguous about his sexuality i mean i know that i probably gravitated towards those kinds of people because i was trying to find safety in that but you know anyone from bowie to freddie mercury to mick jagger mm -hmm. who who didn't necessarily ever have to comment on that even morrissey but i also see that some of my heroes kept me closeted and I don't, I'm not trying to accuse anyone that, mm -hmm. you know, but the, yeah. I, I had propped up these heroes. Even Michael Jackson was so ambiguous and I just found so much safety in that idea of being this sort of who cares. It's no one's business, but I, I realized, and I love the headway that the queer community has made. And it's such a non it's, it's, it doesn't keep you now from having success, which even back down to 2012, even 2014, when we put out the record that I supposedly came out on, Pop Psychology, there was still this air of this might ruin your career, this might hurt your career. Even even not that long ago, you know, I I came out only a couple years after Adam Lambert was blurred on TV for kissing a guy at an award show. You know, and that was still like a subject of, uh, or a topic of um, awkwardness and taboo, you know? So how far we have come, is is beautiful and at the same time they've just switched from being mad at gay men to now being mad at trans people which is you know mm -hmm. you're you're alive long enough like we are and you just see how this is just an age-old um thing to weaponize to distract when there's way more issues at hand that we should be more concerned about but that's neither here nor there yeah, but, but no but <laughs> the brilliance in, in what you just said though is there's always somebody that's going to be Okay, they're the evils today. They're the evil yeah. du jour that it changes. And when you're not at one day, they're going to pick somebody that's in close proximity to you. And yeah. I look at the fact that I'm not in the, the the music industry. I'm an outsider, which is why it makes, for me, I kind of love it because I'm the neutral person. I have no gains. In the, do you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not part yeah. of the label. I'm, I'm not. Well, your, and you probably, like, in, probably in some ways you get to still be a, a pure fan in that way because you're not. I mean, you know things, but you're not as tainted like maybe someone that does have to work in that capacity behind the scenes. Yeah, because and what I've seen over and over again is I've had a ton of Britney Spears producers, collaborators who are like, we came on Steve Lunt. He said he's like, I came on because yours is about the music and the connection with the fans. It's not about that salacious. You don't want that. Nitty like, who is the evil person to you that day at that show sort of thing? Totally. It's. it's what does that get anyone? It doesn't help the art move forward. And all of these letters, it's the fact that you've been somebody who's talked openly, but also I think as a, as a gay man, I think as the outsider, you had it harder because you, in my opinion, as a consumer, as a fan, because you weren't in the pop dance, sugary, sweet, everything is fun that you had to prove yourself as an alternative, as a rock star. You had to have talent 
And even the people that you named, they're not people whose voices were on the radio when you all came out. Do you know what I mean? And not, and came out like music wise, but yeah. I think you had it harder because there was no immediate person behind you. That was, there was no Tyler from 15 years before that. You're like, Oh, this is somebody that kind of gets it. Do you know? What I mean? And that's just me as a, as a, as a, as a fan of the music and everything. And I think you had to prove that you had talent and you did, you had to prove that you had that persona and you did. And it would have been to me easier if you were like, I'm going to go this pop dance. I'm going to just attack it and be, and that's not the genuine you. That's where that disconnect would have happened. So I feel like you as somebody, I can't name many people, not that there aren't many in the alternative rock side in general that have had success in the past 15 years. And that's me as as this historian of music. You know, I'm looking mm. at it going, you know, you had songs that charted for like a year on these things. You had songs that went number one. But then you look, well, who else was on there? You were not, there was a, not another, it was not the Britney versus Christina. You know what I mean? There was no, no. there was no person that was in that same thing, which I think is great, but also harder because you got all that attention, good and bad. Yeah, I mean, I think the rear to have perspective is really nice and ha- to be able to look back at something. Right. And I, I mean, I look back at that time period in 2009, 10, I mean the, the alternative or the, the band world or the very like atypical rock format was extremely homophobic still. Um, and I think very, I mean, you read, you read reviews on pitchfork from that era and they're, mm there was just so much weird um i i this this phrase is overused but toxic masculinity and and a lot of real expectation of what a singer should look like and and sing about and i i think we were also coming out at a time boldly and it felt felt bold at the time it's not anymore but we we were an alternative band that looked a certain way but also said we were a pop band and that was kind of divisive at the time. Pop was such a dirty word. I think, you know, Lady Gaga had only previously come out maybe a year and a half prior to that. And mm-hmm. and right around the same time was really tearing down uh, walls and and reminding people that pop wasn't, you know, I loved when she would say pop wasn't lowbrow. Mm-hmm. Um, pop will never be lowbrow. But she she was a big inspiration to me and she was the biggest pop star at the time. But there was none of that, as you said, in in the rock space. It was so... Um, even now, I think there's an element of that, that still, you know, if you're, if you're four or five people playing instruments on stage, there's still certain rules that you have to follow. I think it's bullshit. And obviously I have never been a great rule follower, but I, you what? Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I totally feel that. I mean, uh, my friend, Justin Tranter, who's now one of the biggest, uh, uh, singer songwriters in the world they they were in a band called semi precious weapons that we would do uh tons of shows with at the time and they were extremely flamboyant and very uh ziggy stardust and it made me question how at that time how were we forgetting all of these uh rock icons that blurred the lines and made everything fun how did we get so deeply in the like conservative black pants and black t-shirt 
look, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I was proud. And I think the other thing that you mentioned is true. Like we weren't, we never paid attention to what was going on at the time on alternative radio. We were just doing our thing. And whether that sounded like echoes of maybe the killers or the strokes and then like, you know, great pop rock, we still were sounding like ourselves. And I think that is a testament to why certain songs of ours are still played, devoured, charted, uh, or, or resonate because we weren't hopping on a trend or a scene or something that remind us, reminds people so much of a specific time that they can't forget that. I mean, there's so many people that think we're either a band that came out five years ago or a band that came out like in mm -hmm. the late 90s. Like, I'm like, late 90s, I'm not like fucking <laughs> <laughs> 60. <laughs> but You're like, how do I look on camera? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jesus. But it's just that it, I, I devour, I digest that when I hear those kinds of things is, and I don't like to say this because I don't think this way, but it is, there's sort of truth to it. They kind of just, certain songs of ours, and especially the ones that have become quote unquote hits, kind of just sound like they could have been made at any time, you know? And I think that is a good thing. And I, I'm happy that for some reason we're still gifted this opportunity to keep making records when so many of our peers in bands at the time are gonzo onto the next, not be able to sustain. And, and somehow we, we were lucky and it's helped shift that very youthful want to be the biggest band in the world into just being the band that we are and grateful that we have fans. And, and I'm not lying when I say those letters are so touching because it, you know, it, I live such an inner life and it's so nice to just hear, you know, really pure, pure words like that from people that I may never meet. It's very, very cool. The amount of these, and I mean, I showed you tons of these pages, and I know we don't have time to go through every single one, yeah. but there there were a couple that I wanted to kind of go into, and it's on the, the music kind of business side, if you will. We have Nance from the Philippines. James, can you ask Tyler how he learned his songs would be on Glee or be synchronized? How does an artist benefit from someone covering their song on TV? I'm starting out as an artist, and he's somebody that I look up to and want to emulate even a little bit. I can learn so much from him. And I just wanted to know if he would be open to talking about that. And can you tell him my first CD I ever bought with my own money was Picture Show? Oh, I love that. Very cool. I mean, first of all, thanks for buying that. that that's I I love hearing that we were someone's first uh, CD because that's such an outlet into like what that sh that will shape what you end up listening to and the artists you discover. So that's very cool. Being synced, especially during the, the the time period we sort of made our headway in like 2010 ish into like 12 and 14. I think it was, it was much like how TikTok is now with a tool to just propel your music out. And it didn't maybe guarantee that your music would be a hit, but it, it gave you a fighting chance to cut through the noise and not rely solely on the radio or just solely on the iTunes store or whatever was the, the thing of the week. But we were lucky. I mean, Glee was such a such an amazing uh, platform of a TV show because they were covering the biggest songs at the time, and and you know the the biggest songs. And so when we were covered, not only on uh, with Animal, but also everybody talks. And then for them to do like we had this little claw dance that we do during Animal, and then to like <laughs> mimic it. And then also to have the song 
I forget which one it was. I think it's Everybody Talks that was tied into the gay love story uh, between Darren Chris and, mm-hmm. and um, Chris Colfer. Chris Colfer. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. And I wasn't even out yet, but there was just sort of this like, I'm glad that that song has reached a storyline like that in a big TV show that the youth are watching. Like that's special. And I think it just adds a layer of connection, right? To, to already a, a song that maybe gets played a lot on the radio, but now it's got a, another layer and that only helps your music get, get heard, but also just connect with, you know, humans in a different way. And then the, the, the commercials we've had, I mean, you know, you, you probably know as well as I do growing up, that whole term selling out was I think a way to keep bands small and a way to mm-hmm. keep artists hungry. And, and you should, you should, I don't ever want anyone to lose their integrity or their soul or like the, the reason and passion that they do music or art, but there's, there's a distinction, right? Because selling out also means that you're making money off the art that um, you make. And this whole concept of selling out, I'm really glad we've really began to burn it down or burned it down in culture because as a lot of people know now, I mean, we're seeing this in the writer strikes in the other side of the, the industry, but a lot of these artists are not rich and a lot of these artists are not, your faves are not getting the checks that you think they are. And, you know, a sink on a commercial or a, a sink on a TV show or a placement guarantees you're going to have money that you may not be able to guarantee otherwise um touring is not the cash cow that people think streaming well is nice but um unless you're an independent artist you don't see most of it so you know i i think we need as much as i love keeping the mystique and the ambiguity and the sort of mystery of the music industry it's really important that the facts are known especially um, we live in such an information age now. I think it's it's amazing that people know and should know that their artists aren't these uh, millionaires that they think that they think With they are. You know, the amount of people who message me going, James, this is the first time I ever heard somebody talk openly. I always send out links after the episode goes out, and I say, here's how to buy the first run of a physical copy. Mm. That's the big thing. So I have people that send me screenshots of them. They purchase something. I'm like, stop putting your address in there. Like, just oh, yeah. I, I will, like, take your word on there. But I'll Don't get dox dozens upon yeah. dozens. Exactly. Of these things. And I tell people, and they said, I assumed that when, like, let's say Neon Trees cuts a song that they get a million dollars that day because it, you know, went number one that day. It came sure. out. No. And it, we talked about recoupable and all of these other things in there that people were like, wait. Does that mean that that music video, do they have to pay? Because we didn't know as consumers that there was that. And I always go, and that's why I still point out the iTunes thing, because the iTunes purchasing still has more power to help out artists Mm. than streaming it. One, you know, everybody talks one purchase is the equivalent of over 1700 streams. So you'd have to have somebody do 1700 streams to even equal that kind of thing. And that's on the, the generous end of it. And to your point, you all we're fortunate enough to have started to make money with the CDs and things like that. And by the way, the amount of people that were like, why did the last album not get released on CD? Why do we not have physical people were very, and I'm like, I am not the label. (laughs) Don't get upset with me. (laughs) Well, I do like to remind, I know we're, we're in a culture (laughs) that we just want to move on from pain and trauma, but I do want to remind everyone we were just in a pandemic and it was absolutely not guaranteed that, artists would ever even tour again. No. So it's like an absolute miracle. I'm not, I hope I don't sound like I'm chastising, but no, I do want to remind people know. like, it's not that far in the distance. And there's so many 
artists and industries still just picking up the pieces and rebuilding like the tour industry on on the forefront looks like everyone's raging and the festivals are open and but it's truly like the top 10 artists in the world are have been able to like get back in arenas and stadiums but if you're anywhere in a rung below that in terms of crowd or or um hard tickets there's still a real chance that you might not see money on your tour and it's truly just for marketing and i'm always again i like to keep the mystery and i like to keep the mystique but it's it's important pe- to people to know that how much a tour even costs these days you know a bus is infinitely higher now in 2023 than it it costs to tour in 2015 and that's not to, to, for me to complain i'm very fortunate and we are a fortunate band to have been able to see money and make money off of our biz- business you know it's not as easy as as selling t-shirts and selling out a show anymore doesn't guarantee you know you're going to see the life changing money that people think you might be making so i just want to remind people that yep. there are still a lot of your faves especially your faves that are like like young and fresh and new they they need you to buy that physical merch or they need you to like stream their song because they're not seeing uh income the way maybe we did when we were starting out you know and that's the important part and so we're going to we're going to have this last question it's actually kind of a a big thing but Everyone, I have a feeling that Tyler will come back to where I can answer or ask me <laughs> 3,000 other questions that we didn't even get into. But we have Chase from New York. James, you are my go-to guy for music information interviews. Please do a deep dive into Tyler Glenn's solo album, Excommunication. It is one of the most raw and unabashedly honest albums I have ever heard. Can you ask him why he chose to make a solo album at that point? And how did the other members take it when he decided to do a solo album? You hear about mm. all this friction. I listen to the album all the time and I want more people to hear it. James, do your thing. Thanks. <laughs> and talk <laughs> about it so more people can hear its production because it's out of the world, something different and still hits today. I honestly feel like there's nothing that comes close to perfection, but this is right at the finish line. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Thank thank you. And I, it it's interesting because obviously the success on the public facing side of Neon Trees is you know, eclipses what my solo record did, but I still to this day hear more about excommunication than I do even about certain Neon Tree songs. It was a very painful record to make, but I did it because I knew I had the, the opportunity at the time. My, my band knew around 20, end of 2015, 2016, that I was going to make a solo album. My label wanted me to do it. I, I had already been writing songs for it. And it was, I was making a pop record and I was getting a little bit more, you know, interest, in, interested in the production side and making like really kind of interesting, aggressive electronic music that had pop melodies. And then I had a crisis of faith and um, I had a full blown paradigm shift and left my religion and was feeling so uh, displaced and my relationship with God had shattered and I just felt really like if I'm going to write, I've always written what I know. I've always written about my experiences as a human being. How am I not going to now write about this active thing that's going on inside of me? And I was also making it with Tim Pagnata, who at that point was my one of my best friends and true collaborators. And so I felt safe to do so. 
And I had a budget to work with from a label. And I, for better, for worse, through the maybe five or six songs that I'd started writing um, initially for what I thought was going to be a different album and poured my heart out into all those songs and spent so much time on it and had a budget and had an A&R with it. I think that's as much as I wish that it had cut through or been marketed differently. It's a hard record to market, a faith crisis record about losing Mm -hmm. religion and coming out. But I do think there's a testament to the fact that people are still discovering it. Hopping up for a quick second to remind you, if you are enjoying this interview, please be sure right now, make sure that you rate the show. That truly does help out and let people know about this. You can go through the rest of the episodes and see all the different guests and all the different songs that we kind of look into, do a little deep dive into each of these creatives and all their great works. So don't forget to do that. And if you have any question for Tyler, please go ahead and send it in my DMs, the.original.doll on Instagram, or go to the website, theoriginaldoll.com. Now back to the show. People are still discovering it uh, of its purity because I will I will say it is the purest music I've ever made because I was actively going through it as I was making the visuals, as I was uh, writing the songs. It wasn't like I took a year or two and then took what I felt and put it in. It wasn't, mm. you know, that kind of div- divorce album where maybe you like go away for a year yep. and then collect your thoughts. It was to a T from the vein, exactly what I was feeling. And there, I don't know if I'll ever have an opportunity to make a record like that again. I, I will always be as pure as I can, but it was just this perfect storm. And I, I also don't know if I ever want to be in that kind of pain again. You know, I, I think there's a reason why I didn't, I think I did like 11 shows on that tour, on that record. And I made three music videos and I did as much promotion as I could, but there was a point where I had to put it on a shelf and leave it or it was going to consume. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and even then there's a hopeful ending to that album as well. So I think, and, and the person that I am now, I'm glad I don't recognize who that was, even though I obviously he, he is me. I'm glad that I'm farther away from that visceral pain and anger but i still have that shamelessness now that i that i felt on this record and i still feel i feel even more of a whole person than i did on that album so i'm so happy that people still discover it and maybe maybe someday i will want to do something with it again you know I, i know that it's important to certain people and you know i'm glad i'm glad it exists yeah, your talk is cheap, you like mystery I've been awake since 2 a.m. I can barely stand another low But the highs I wanna do them again We'll be at you with a couple friends This ain't love, but maybe we pretend With some pornographic movie And we all know how it ends I won't say it again It's the darkest time of the When I first heard it, I was like, wow, because the, the sonically it was different and I didn't know what to what to expect. And then when I went down to just like visuals aside, when I went down to the bones of the song, just put it on headphones, 
listen to it. It was odd because it felt like this character, but it was a hundred percent you. It felt like mm. a, a new side of you that you didn't let the world view. It was this raw emotion and it was, I don't want to say catchy, but it, it had that, like I was connected to it, but the subject matter was so different and it was so much deeper than I thought music could go. And mm. I think at the end of it, I couldn't imagine touring it even more than once because just putting yourself back in that moment. And it wasn't to your point. It wasn't, this was an album about your 21st birthday and then you turned 30 and released it. Yeah, this was, yeah. you're in the war. I don't know. I don't think this album would have been as great if you would have waited a year. I think you would have. I agree with you. Said, certain edited yourself. I agree with you. And I also, to your point, I don't think I would have been able to make it under the name neon trees because I was a so, neon trees was a so not that those songs or those albums are at, inauthentic at all. It's just at that point. I mean, now we've made so much headway as a group and we're so, we're seeing so much more connected than we were then, um, which I'm grateful for. We have great relationships. I think now I feel free in Neon Trees to write certain things and I'm not maybe hiding as much. I think I'm a little bit more explicit and a little bit more unabashed. Yeah, it just felt safe under my own name. You know, Tyler Glenn, this is my, these are my words. This is what I'm feeling. And I'm not, you know, my, certain band members at the time were offended and kind of freaked out. They didn't know what mm -hmm. what does this mean for the band how do we proceed is this the type of subject matter you feel like you're gonna have to make in you know think yep. things that maybe at the time in retrospect were hurtful but I, I understood it too they were in a place of of pain and discomfort as well and we've made a lot of uh headway since then but but yeah no i think it was just that that opportunity and i i seized it and and i don't think the label was fully got it they were supportive but they didn't really know how to you know I, and i kind of wish they had just marketed it like any other pop record and not focused so much on the the theming um because maybe it would have had a chance to, to cut through um if someone just was listening to the song and not necessarily understanding the full weight of it but it's fine you know i, I as we live now songs from 10 years ago become uh relevant again 100%. so percent I'm totally happy that it exists. I think the brilliance of it is it was a piece on its own that like whatever you had intended to do, the hope as a, a fan of your music, a fan of your voice and words, I hope that it did for you what it needed to do. Because for yeah. me, it gave me just a new channel, a new frequency with you that mm. I had not heard before. And also I think the hard part is you want to market it so more people know it, but then marketing, you're like, I have to just boil it down to one word. What do we do? Yeah. And listeners, when we do this again, I want to break down that album. Just talk about those different songs, the sonics and things like that, because I think it's an important album for you as a human being, not just as a as an artist, because you created something. I'm shocked that somebody's being this open in that moment. And it was, I'm not putting the shield of neon trees in front of me. I'm not putting that. You don't like it then it's me. You love it, then it's me. And there's the bravery thing. And people mention bravery all the time. And I just think your skill set, your biggest talent is always being honest with yourself. And by that way, through the music, being honest, because even all those songs before you even, you know, quote unquote, came out or anything, it was still those honest things in that moment. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah, you're you're one of the few icons that I've talked to where oh, thank you. you have made music that has made people feel seen and welcome. 
and also welcomes in that that dark that you need to feel like i remember years ago landis morissette's like i created this one album later on in her career she goes i wanted you to hit that rock bottom but at the end feel that optimism because it's not just always being low there's so many different levels just when you think you're out of it something can pull you back down and i think what you did was create sonically a brilliant album lyrically a brilliant album i think reading all of these letters and there was a shit ton of them. I think people were like, this is your magnum opus. This is that moment fans of yours waited for and your listeners, your fans, the people who love you have grown with you. So you've been able to evolve and go further with the music that I don't think you would have done 10, 12 years ago. You know what I mean? And you can tell me if I'm I, wrong, but I feel like, no, no, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I also think it, I think it gave light and shade to neon trees as well in retrospect. And I think moving forward, it's helped like our record after um, I can feel you forgetting me. I think that record still has touches of um, elements of my solo record, at least in production, but it does sound like the band, but I think it also excommunication helped me bust through the ceiling of ever being afraid to say what I felt um, and never having to hide it or wrap it in a certain way or use a different word. Um, and now I think on this new body of work, we're working on it and, and I'm going to put out in the next year. It, it even shows more how confident I feel um, in my body and with my voice and who I am and, and my point of view. And I, I just know as a fan and a consumer of music and I have, if, if I know anything, I think it's music or at least just, I, I'll, I'll never say I, I'm a, historian as much as you are but i am a student and it's the only thing i've been truly purely obsessed with my whole life and i just know how i just know that the audience is smarter and they know when someone's lying and it's not to say there can't be fluff i love fluff you know 100%. but and not everything has to be so weighty and heavy but what you're going back to even about jagged little pill it's, it's not always about being on the low let's also you know, talk about the highs, the lows, the mids, the, and I always want to be honest like that. Um, and I, I think looking back, I always was as honest as I felt like I could be in my, in that moment in my life. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that I continue to, to, to be that way and, and to take down just to, to make sure that there's never going to be walls or a closet back, uh, back up, you know? And I, think that you have made people feel connected worldwide. And I think that me only reading 2% of everything I have, just know that these people, and I mean, myself included, are fans of your music, fans of you, that were cheerleaders for you, because you've created, you've used your talent to connect with people and to make so many people feel not alone at the cost of yourself. At the, mm. you know, because it always has to be stressful releasing something, but then releasing any music that is vulnerable and truly you, where because then people are like, oh, I didn't like that song. It was too blah, blah, blah. You're like, well, oh, my God, me. I, <laughs> I know. I mean, just we just released the new single Favorite Days like three weeks ago. And I just, the minute we released it, I felt like on a ledge out in the middle, very vulnerable. And I just, I know, I remind myself that it is my process when I put music out because uh, it, it's taking the safety of that creation period for the few years you work on it. And yeah, you're right. Someone can literally listen to it for 40 seconds and go, oh, I don't really like it. And then that's just it. Or it becomes their new soundtrack for, you know, their life or whatever. But, 
and then that's the reminder. I just can't, as much as I will always be fully feel it all when I make the music, I can't necessarily feel it all and, and it, read every comment and it, absorb mm -hmm. every opinion about it after. It's, it's not mine. It's yep. theirs to, to do what they want. <laughs> And I think the great part is with this, so many people have just reached out to me and they were just like, you know, they're more raw and open with me because you never know how somebody could receive that. So in that way, they're like you, the artist going, I'm going to put, some, I don't know how it's going to be received, but they're like, you know what, if you can tell him for me, we'll do that. But I think the amount of people and the amount of love that you had is insane. And favorite days charted all over the place. There's a bunch of these things. And before I let you go, we had, these are just some fun things. You've also, the Frankie Mweenie soundtrack, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, in Thailand, it went number one on the rock album charts. And people oh were God, like, really? that's how they found you. Which, cool. this to me is great. New Best Friend, the DVRKO remix went number one on alternative charts in Costa Rica. Everybody Talks Just This Year went number two in Malaysia. And this is and there's a ton of these. Favorite Days was all over the place with goodness. And I wanted to get to those. But the main thing is you've made Feel Good, went to number two in Colombia. Don't You Want Me, number two in the Ukraine. Teenager in Love, number 10 in Sweden. Like these are songs, to your point, not all these were these singles that were out there. Not all these. And no. most of these, Living Single, Poland, number 12, Used to Like, number 14, Skeleton Boy, number 13, Everything is Killing Me, number 11 in Poland. These Amazing. trust, hooray for Hollywood. These are songs that connected with people. And I think that you have a lot of fans that are waiting for this next thing. So I know you're not going to say much about albums or anything, mm. but can we expect anything Neon Trees by after favorite days, can we expect anything by the end of the year? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we are touring. The it's selling well. Um, tickets are on sale now in the U.S. So we're we're starting in in uh, the home states um, in September and October on the favorite days tour, and we'll be playing favorite days. And yeah, we, we're about to do a video for another song. So there'll be I think there's going to be two more songs before the end of the year. And then the album we're looking to release around March next year. So we're, we're the lights are on and we are fully, we're not going to, I know sometimes our fans get mad because we do do a start stop thing. And, and I, we can't be blamed for what happened on the last record because we released it during the height of the pandemic, but I'm the so single grateful came that. out the end of like 2019. <laughs> it was I know, I know <laughs> who predicted it. No one, no one could have predicted that, but, um, but I'm just happy. I hope nothing stands in the way. <laughs> of uh of of promoting it but um but yeah more music is surely on the way so well tyler thank you so much for being here today on the original doll truly appreciate you spending the time with us thank you james this was very nice i, I really liked it appreciate you and everyone, I'll be at the Chicago show for Neon Trees. So let me know where you're going to be seeing Neon Trees. And follow me, the.original.doll on Instagram. And I'll be sharing links on how to follow Tyler and Neon Trees. Bonus track.
Everyone, I'd like to welcome you back to The Original Doll. I am your host, James Rodriguez on The Original Doll. We unpackage music with the people who create it and give to charity. For more information, go to Instagram, the.original.doll. Now, today we are joined by musician, recording artist, and somebody with a very great taste in music, MKX. MKX, thank you <laughs> thank for being you. here. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, the fun thing is, when you get to talk to people whose music you listen to and you get to kind of hear about their inspirations and the listeners behind MKX is a wall of music and inspiration. And so to me, that's, it's kind of telling because knowing some of your music, I'm like, ah, ah, this is <laughs> the real McCoyness of it all. I was like, <laughs> I get it right over I there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, I love it. And this is this is the best part, being able to talk to people because so many times a creative just says, here's my new song, stream it now. You know, there might be a little tidbit of info here and there, but on the original doll, I like kind of deep diving so that people, this is the best part, people that might not even know who you are, can I get a, a little bit of taste about who you are and then listen to the music and learn from there. I go, it's never bad to have new ears on old songs. So thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to yeah dive in with you and talk about the creative process. And yeah, I, I love music as as much as I can tell you love music as well <laughs> by your podcast. And yeah, we have a lot of the same um, people that we admire. And yeah, I'm excited to, to chat with you. Meet me on the bright side, light it up, yeah, light it up. I'll show you what my night like. Light it up, well, I light it up, yeah. We can sip on my ties, mix it up with that. Oh. Meet me on the bright side, light it up, yeah, light it up, yeah. Ah, ah, ah. Let's rewind back. When did music become a part of you when did music come to you um i always joke and i say it was when i popped out of the womb but it was not it was not that far off from there <laughs> i mean i was yeah before i could really kind of like talk and walk and communicate i was always singing and making music and uh when i was three years old i got this uh like fisher price tape recorder as like a <laughs> I think it was a birthday gift or something and yeah, I used to record, I used to like write songs. They were terrible at the time because I was three, but I used to, yeah, I had like a little, a little tiny beat machine from Toys R Us and this little tape recorder and I would write songs and record them on a little cassette. And uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of when it all started. And I just, yeah, fell in love with music and creating music and emulating for my influences and turning things into my own. And yeah, I just kept doing it ever since then. Well, and the cool thing is, first of all, this would be hysterical if in 10 years from now, we hear some young girl going, um, MKX is a liar. He stole that for me. He did not get it for his birthday. That was my cassette. <laughs> I love when people are like, I think I got it for my birthday. And then you find out later, oh, no, it wasn't. It was just left there. <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo shaking right now. Who took my tape <laughs> All right. So then who were some of those inspirations? Who were some of those artists that really kind of stood out to you early on because here we talk about how around the teen years you know 14 15 16 17 that really has an impact on the music that you love you're exposed to and the music that you kind of turn to later in life so just who were some of those artists that kind of you know were were that for you were around you um well i was always super into like pop culture and pop music ever since i was like a really little kid i grew up idolizing Britney and I loved yeah insane the Backstreet Boys and 
I was a huge Avril Lavigne fan, Shakira fan. This was one of the first albums I ever got, Laundry so Service. Um, yeah, I, I just kind of grew up with what was um, like pop pop as as it was in the 2000s. And um, yeah, I feel like that was kind of my my musical influence growing up. And then my biggest artistic influence was falling in love with Lady Gaga when she came out. I was 10 turning 11 at the time. And I've just, yeah, I've never really seen anything like that. It was, yeah, back in 2008, I saw her with her her video glasses and her disco stick. And um, I was, yeah, just watching someone marry music with uh, like fashion and technology. And it was, yeah, it was a really mind blowing thing to me. And that that still is, yeah, one of my my biggest inspirations. And yeah, I'm very influenced by the music that I grew up with and um, and then also, of course, now more kind of current experimental electronic sound design kind of things like Sophie up here um, and more kind of like R&B pop Tanasha. I love how I can just point like I'm doing like a PowerPoint. Oh, I always <laughs> say I always say I'm a weatherman here. This song, yeah. this song, this song. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of like putting all those things that I love and putting them into a blender. And then it kind of comes out as this thing that is. MKX is just kind of, yeah, combining all the things that I grew up loving and paying homage to all of them and kind of turning it into something that's new. Well, and I think that's the cool part about me going through your music is there's like the referential where you acknowledge those other artists before you. Because I dislike when artists are like, oh, I never listened to anything. It's like, no, whether you liked it, there was always music around. But you oh, yeah. also hold like Lady Gaga in high regards and Lady Gaga and Shakira are those who married kind of pop rock and alternate and they did it in such a genuine way. And I think that that's something that oftentimes gets overlooked by so many people that they didn't realize Lady Gaga at the beginning is not the Lady Gaga we have now, mm -hmm. but it's still the genuine Lady Gaga today as it was, you know, 15 years ago. Oh yeah, for sure. I feel like the artists that I've always kind of gravitated towards the most were artists who weren't afraid to really be themselves to the fullest and who you had kind of their their artistic uh, personality really come through in their music. Um, yeah, had really distinct brands. I don't, I don't know like how intentional that is or not. I mean, of course, to in pop music is very important to have like branding and be unique and stuff. But yeah, I just I feel like they're the uniqueness of the people that I always looked up to just kind of oozed out of them. Um, like Avril Lavigne always was wearing like a necktie and Shakira was always belly dancing and Lady Gaga always had like a, like a really fashion forward pop outfit where you're like, Oh, that's Gaga. Like that's her. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I feel like I just kind of gravitated towards those people. And um, part of it was, yeah, like growing up, I was kind of afraid to be myself and uh, I, really admired the artists who yeah were just really themselves to the fullest and now I'm super proud to to be one of those artists who's just not afraid to yeah just just take everything that I love and really kind of put it in people's faces and not be afraid of what people think at all and if I like my art that's what's important and um yeah I mean of course it's it's great when other people admire my art as well and I feel like yeah I feel like a lot of people who listen to my music also kind of emulated the same people so they get the different references and they're like oh, I see the little the little Britney reference you put in your thing I'm like yeah that's yeah so it's yeah it's really it's it's really fun to kind of connect with 
with people who grew up with the same music that I did. Well, and the great part is with you is somebody who liner notes, seeing who created, who produced, who uh-huh. did this, who did that. And when I created this in a couple of weeks ago, we had an episode with Lauren Christie of the Matrix who did Avril Lavigne's first yeah! album. Oh my God. And and Shadow Britney Spears, you know, so many That's of these wild. other songs. Yeah. And then I go to, you know, people that I've interviewed with Britney Spears, like people from the, the Britney album who worked with Gaga early on. And they yeah. were like, we were, we were told that she wanted to be this Debbie Harry kind of thing, but she... And they said, you know, the label kept saying she wants to do this. She wants to do this. And then it's like, that's not at all what she wanted to do. And what she created was what she wanted to do. But the problem was, I think so many people just go, it's pop, it's rock. They don't understand the different aspects in each. To your point, Shakira Mm -hmm. doing all of these great songs, even with, you know, the Black Eyed Peas and everything, she can do all of these great songs that have a story to tell, like a country song. And that mm-hmm. she always has something a little edgier, whether it's Eastern European, whether it's Latin flair in there. And I think when it comes to your music, I think it's not as simple as this is electronic, this is pop. This is It's a whole melting pot of all these sonics, which I think makes it interesting. And so that's why I want to talk about Brightside, because I saw the video and I was like, this is amazing, because this was oh, unabashedly what it was going to be. And I, I absolutely loved it. So let's rewind. Let's go back to the creation of this the collaborators your inspiration you know kind of talk us through that um so i at the time was i was very much in studio mode i was teaming up with maya marie who you know of course and have interviewed before Mm -hmm. she is a a fantastic songwriter super incredibly talented um we were writing a bunch of songs together um we did a few sessions with brandon cobain who's also a really incredibly talented songwriter and I yeah was just making making beats uh, ahead of time. And I mean, some of them were like beats that I kind of had on my hard drive that I was like, OK, like I've wanted to write to these for a little while. Like, we'll try that. But it's funny because the songs that I ended up liking the most, one of them being Brightside, were the songs where I was like, let me try whipping something up together the night before <laughs> and and see what I can come up with. And um, yeah, I just kind of came up with that that bouncy kind of beat and I brought it in to the the session and I wanted to I wanted to write about um kind of looking at the world yeah from the bright side you know look on the bright side but I wanted it to kind of be almost like a place or like a state of mind that's kind of a um yeah more kind of descriptive than look on the bright side I really wanted to kind of paint a a, a picture in the lyrics of like what the bright side looks like and what it feels like. And I also kind of wanted that to reflect sonically as well. Um, so yeah, we we ended up banging out the song really fast. The top line of the song was like, I don't know, it took us like 50 minutes, 45 minutes That's, of us just having a great time. That is amazing. It. it was so much fun. It was a really, really fun session. Yeah. And then I just laid down the vocals. I'm always... I feel like the skeleton of a song takes me usually really quick. And then it's like that 85% and up of like fine tuning and adding little sounds that takes me like, I don't know, a couple weeks, sometimes a couple months. In this case, it took me, I'd say maybe like over the span of a couple a couple months from when we started to when it was like done. Uh, but it was like in little increments, you know, um, I really love toying around with sound design and I have some some gear where I can like make synth sounds and I also have some 
some gear that, uh, yeah, like Max Martin used to use, Dark Child used mm. to use, like some hardware gear with samples that, um, like I'll be scrolling through it and be like, oh, that's the sound from this song or this song. Um, so it's, yeah, it was fun to kind of blend those two worlds and yeah, make something that was nostalgic, but also futuristic. Cause that's kind of what makes me feel happy. And that's like my bright side, I guess, is blending those two worlds together. Well, and that's the fun part. It's like, you're a student of music of the real world. You're, you're listening, taking all these things in. And this is the cool part when people get plugins and things like that, like, wait a minute, is that from overprotected? Uh, wait a minute, uh -huh. is that from this? Cause then they can take those tools and play with them and just keep experimenting. And I think the part about experimenting is that's what keeps you evolving as an artist. So let me ask you this. When you created the song, when did you decide we're going to have visuals? We're going to do a video. At what point did you go, this is worth putting time, energy, money into this? Actually, it was a lot later than one would think. Um, I mean, I really loved the song, of course, and I was excited to to put it out. I mean, yeah, I wrote a bunch of songs with Maya and Brandon and some other really talented songwriters who are um, friends of mine. And I yeah, was just mainly focusing on like, OK, I got this single out. Let's put out the next one. Let's do let's just keep it pushing. But I yeah, a lot of people were like, oh, you need to do a video to Brightside and you know, my dancers and my choreographer were like, when's the video for Brightside? We love Brightside. And <laughs> um, I mean, any song that I make, I kind of picture it visually and like what the the sonics kind of um, would look like based on what it sounds like and what it feels like. So I, I kind of had all of that already in my brain, but was kind of, I don't know, like repressing it because I was like, OK, we're going to focus on the music. But um, yeah, we ended up just kind of throwing together this video and like, I don't know, we planned it in like a week and a half, two weeks or something. And that's amazing. Um, yeah, it was <laughs> it was really crazy. It was a lot of sleepless nights. I yeah, my whole kind of aesthetic that I wanted to go for. It's called uh, Frutiger Arrow. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. When technology was very like liquid and transparent and water mm. and nature and that was the vibe that I wanted to go for and like fish and water and bubbles and uh because that's kind of what the song felt like was that aesthetic of visuals that I mean that's a kind of another thing that I grew up with I was always on the computer ever since I was a little kid so uh I yeah I really wanted to to pay homage to that and incorporate a lot of those kind of like textures and visuals in the video but also make it feel really futuristic and pop the two different worlds of I had the the little the fish tank made out of the old iMac mm -hmm. was, uh, more on the nostalgic <laughs> side and then which was a lot of fun that was I, I yeah I like ran to the fish store and was like I don't know what to do and the director babysat the fish for me the night before to make sure they didn't die <laughs> um yeah it was it was a little nerve-wracking but it worked out this place in LA that had these LED screens and that kind of brought more of the the futuristic aspect because I got to put these visuals that I created for the the live show because we did a few live shows pro promoting Brightside we did some pride shows and uh yeah there were screens so of course I I love to make all the visuals and <laughs> um have that whole moment so it was cool to, to incorporate what? Those you who grew up on all these artists with visuals wanted visuals with their music yeah <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I feel like that's the 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 biggest thing. Like my anytime I do a show, I'm like, oh, I hope they have a screen. I hope they have a, like a screen or a projector or something, because 
Yeah, it's it really everything that I that I do in the show goes hand in hand with all these visuals that I make. Yeah, it came out looking really killer. I worked with this director that I met back in 2019. We did another music video together for a song called Right Place at the Right Time. And he is, yeah, he's super talented. And I, yeah, I hit him up. I was like, do you want to do this video? Or we're trying to do this video pretty fast. And he was like, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It came out to be exactly what I wanted and and more. So yeah, I'm super thankful for everyone who helped me bring my vision to life. And so how can everyone follow you, check out the video? How can they get a hold of all of that great info? Uh, you can follow me at MKX Music on most of my socials. And yeah, if you search MKX Brightside on YouTube, it should come right up on Spotify, MKX. Everyone, this is what we'll do. If you have any questions for MKX about any of his other songs or anything, message me. Thank you so much for being here today on The Original Doll. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun with you. This has been awesome. And listeners, don't forget any questions you have for MKX. Go ahead and DM me. Make sure you write, rate, review, all sorts of things. And let me know, what is your favorite MKX song? See you on the flip side.